Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought I'd tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Okay, before I take you to the podcast, I want to give you a little bit of a reminder about the power of focus and accountability. This is the one tool that will really get you towards the goals you are seeking, towards the path you want to take. So listen to the end to find out more or check out the link in the show notes. Anyway, let's get you back to the podcast. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people. And what I have discovered is that our story is everything. Because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? I arrive at that Dutchman that she is, uh, the lady. And uh, I found the money, I told her. And so I was uh, counting out, counting those notes, trembling hands, as if it happened yesterday. I remember it so vividly. I'm cold sweating. Like, Dimitri, you are an agent. Stop it. Stop. Stop. <laughs> and then there was this tiny voice somewhere in the back of my mind from the clouds. Somewhere like, come on, what are you waiting for? This is your dream. Just do it. Freaking do it. In my weekend show, I was exploring the idea of passion, purpose and meaning. And I was wondering what I was going to share with you today. And it suddenly occurred to me the most passionate guest I remember of recent recent times is Dmitry Badierov. And he's a violin maker. I will let my younger self tell you more about this because it is an amazing journey. When I was approached by Dmitry Badierov, a musician and luthier, violin maker, I realised that my focus on business people had almost precluded the most passionate people on the planet. The music you can hear playing in the background is Dmitry and his wife, Tomi. The instruments they are playing were both made by Dmitry. One is violin and the other is a vincello de spalla. If I were to ask a random group of people what things are the most common passions, Music would be high up on the list. But what is strange is music is all around us, and yet in the modern world, so few of us learn to play. In my parents' generation, everyone played something, and making music together was part of everyday life. I guess different times, no TV and no internet, of course. Dmitry is from a small town in southern Russia, and he started to play the violin at just age eight. By age 11, he was proficient enough to be tutored by a renowned professor. But try as he may, his factory-made instrument was not capable of making the beautiful sounds he was looking for. His professor introduced him to the local violin maker and it was a life-changing moment. When Dimitri's love and passion for music grew to include the repair and making of instruments. 
Our conversation is full of imagery and wonder, and we talk about the mystic and mythology of famous instruments, and of course, his journey from the student to the master of his craft, and a world-renowned violin maker. We hear how he struggled to make his first violin, working the wood on his lap with tools made from nail files. How he telephoned 300 friends and family to borrow $1,000 that would change his life. He left Russia to explore the world and eventually settled in the Netherlands and opened his first repair shop. There is the rediscovery of the ancient conditions and techniques of the master makers and how he champions the violoncello de Spalla. It has been 28 years since Dimitri opened his first workshop and he stopped repairing violins 20 years ago to focus exclusively on making unique instruments with the Baroque sound. In 2013 he suffered a cerebral stroke and was faced with the possibility of never playing or making another violin. After a full recovery he recognised his limits. At this time in his life he can only make 30 more instruments with the time that he has left. So it's time to pass on what he has learned to other ambitious instrument makers so his impact and work can continue. Today his mission is to work with students to produce the best instruments but also to develop their entrepreneurial skills so they get paid to be the best they can be. He wants them to thrive so that together they can ensure the ancient traditions live on and continue to enrich our culture. Ultimately, Dimitri's belief is that if you're going to make an instrument, leave a legacy, a mark the world can't ignore or erase. I hope you enjoy this rich conversation with Dmitry Barierov. Today I am delighted to be with Dmitry Barierov. Now he is a violin designer, a speaker and a mentor. And I have to say, he's the first real musician I've had on the show. So I'm so delighted to have this conversation because... You know, I speak to entrepreneurs and business people, but it really is nice to talk to people who are in the creative sector. So thank you, Dimitri, for being here with me today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Oh, I'm, it's my pleasure, Paul. I'm really, really um, grateful for the opportunity to talk to you and share my message and talk about life and passion and business and, uh, and music and arts. I'm really, really wildly passionate about all those things. So well, it is interesting because you know, when, when we think of passion, we do think of music and creative industries. We do think of people being passionate about their art. And of course, people are passionate about business and, and passionate about helping people. But the arts is the place where passion probably first started. So, and, and it's interesting, I have been remiss in terms of not bringing someone like you on the program before. So mm. thank you for saying yes and being here today. My pleasure, Paul. So what's the story with you? What is your story? Obviously, you, I, I know you're a violin, I know you're a violin maker, which I think is fascinating. Mm. I'm sure we'll explore that story. But how did it all start for you in the beginning? Great question, Paul. So um, I started as a violin maker when I was a kid. I was 11 years of age. And the reason I started as a violin maker is because I was also playing the violin. I started at the age of eight. So um, it was one of those um, days when I had a lesson with my beloved professor, Simon Ziskind. Uh, we are still in a very close relationship. It's mm. a lot of time, a lot of years have passed since then. And he's absolutely brilliant person. He's like my musical father. He's almost like second father for me. And um, uh, 
he's a brilliant teacher and he's the one who planted this passion for music, for violin in all of his students. And I was blessed to be one of them. So we were working on the sound. Um, imagine a very small room, uh, literally maybe 15 square meters in mm -hmm. a kind of uh, dormitory belonging to the theater in my hometown in the south of Russia. And um, yeah, we are working on the sound and um, I'm sweating and I'm struggling to get this beautiful sound. And Semyon Grigoryevich Ziskin stops me and says, no, Dimitri, that's not sound. That doesn't sound good. That's not how you make good sound. Move the boat this way. Move the boat closer to the bridge, farther from the bridge, less pressure, more pressure, and on and on and on and on. And I felt almost discouraged and I just stopped playing at one point. Yeah, so... To put it in perspective, I'm 11 years of age at that yeah. point. And I look at him and I look at his violin and I tell him, uh, Semyon Grigorievich, look at your violin. You are playing a wonderful Italian instrument. And it doesn't matter how hard I work, how much I practice, I will never get that kind of sound. What if I first fix my violin? Does that make sense? Mm. He agreed with me. So he introduced me to the violin maker in the town. And this was like a, well, I, I can't exaggerate if I say it's, it was a life-changing moment because this man, he was like a magician from a fairy tale. Imagine uh, a man in his, yeah, 60s maybe, hmm. uh, with, with very, very thick eyeglasses. I, I don't know how thick the lenses were, but... Um, you know, his eyes, he, the pupils of his eyes were completely filling up those lenses, like magnifying glasses. <laughs> <laughs> he probably couldn't see a thing without those glasses. And he had this most charming smile and quietness about him. And he was very slow and very, you know, like not rushy at all. And I fell in love with him before he even said anything. I just felt there was something magical about that. And of course, all these instruments around and tools and wooden shaving and smell of wood and, and varnish. And it's beautiful, like a very unusual atmosphere. Someone so I, established in their art and, and in their skill. So, so yeah. at home in their body and so at home in what they did. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know what happened in, on that moment in my mind, instead of asking him, would you please fix my violin? I asked him, would you please teach me how I can fix my violin? Mm -hmm. It's like, happened like that. And, um, and to my surprise, well, he accepted me after a few questions. Why do you want to do that? And so on. So he accepted me. I became an apprentice uh, to this magician. And in the beginning, uh, the, old, oh, the, the only thing I was doing was cleaning workshop, essentially. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything much about violin making. But indeed, he taught, me, he taught me how to fix my really crude factory-made instrument. And of course, it hasn't become an Italian violin. Surely not. But it has become a little bit better. But this tiny difference was so huge for me that was really inspirational. Immediately I, I, I became a I'm much curious, better player. I'm yeah. curious, what did he have you do to the violin that changed Oh, it? that was very easy to fix. It was a violin that was kind of um, a varnished wooden box, essentially, but everything was really crude and very wrong about it. So essentially, 
he he opened it for me. Well, actually, he he taught me how to open the box, measure the thicknesses, and he explained, well, see here, the thickness is way too thick. We have to reduce that. Here are the thicknesses are very sloppy. We have to make them more even. And so we we took apart the whole violin and then assembled it back a um, couple of months later. Mm -hmm. And it, of course, became better because... Um, I can imagine, I think, because uh, as you say, <laughs> a, a factory violin is produced out of factory wood and, 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 and there's no tolerance or the tolerances are poor. And then obviously yes. when you take it apart and you actually measure it and beautifully craft away the wood, I imagine you make the, the resonance of the real wood come out. Yes, yes. So this was very inspiring. So when the instrument was closed, there was so much more resonance, it was so much more... Mm. So, so much easier to play mm -hmm. and just that difference in that instrument made me exponentially better player but probably that's how I felt at that moment anyway and I then fixed the violin for my brother because my brother is also a violinist and then started fixing violins for all of the students of my professor and this is how I got initiated into instrument making however it was not until uh, much later when I actually built the whole instrument from scratch for myself. That was later in 1992 in St. Petersburg when I moved to, to study at one of, the, one of those elite schools of music in uh, St. Petersburg. And um, it's 2,000 kilometers up north from my hometown. Yeah, so the new era, new chapter in my life began. Yeah. And what, what I mean, I can't, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I, oh, you better tell me, what was the passion driving you here? Because I, and I, I can imagine it. I, I'm almost there with you with this violin. I can feel it. But to, to, for my <laughs> listeners, explain what the difference is for you. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a very subtle question. We can speak about this uh, days, maybe even weeks. Um, uh, you see, imagine yourself in that school. It's a very um, elitist school for it had even an elitist name it was back in those years it was called a school for unusually gifted children or something along wow. these lines okay you know. yeah 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 whatever so today it is called a lyceum music lyceum but back then it was called a school for specially gifted uh, musician uh, children so i the competition was fierce there was like 70 uh, applicants per place mm -hmm. so it was kind of um, i don't know how i made it but I was accepted. And um, in that school, all of the kids were playing unbelievable instruments. Like these instruments today, they cost in uh, like six and seven figures of like millions of pounds or euros or dollars. <clears throat> this is the kind of instruments back then kids played at the school because their parents were wealthy and all were very established musicians there were lots of celebrities kids of celebrities at my school it was really fun were very high um, um uh, environment for high performance uh, one of those hot bets for music talent definitely did uh help in a, in a big way that school and I felt myself really terrible and in kind of inferior. I was even bullied by some <laughs> people, including professors. <laughs> because uh, I, I was playing that uh, 19th century or early 20th century factory-made German violin. And it was not a terrible instrument, but in comparison to those Italian instruments or French mm. instruments, it was a very crude instrument. It was very cheap. Mm. And I was wondering how can I help myself out of this situation? Because I just didn't see the way where I can find a spare uh, six figures or mm. seven yeah, figures just to, to buy one of those violins. Yeah, yeah. So the only way I found out was to make it myself. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I can see that. And that's where, yeah, and my former master from my hometown, Nalchik in Caucasus, uh, he encouraged me, Dimitri, you are now in St. Petersburg. You definitely have to find there an instrument maker, apprentice, and carry on with your training and education, start making instruments. And it took six years to find somebody because, um, yeah, there were plenty of instrument makers, but nobody wanted to have apprentices because I don't mm. know, maybe they felt they didn't want to have more competition or whatever reason, but they didn't so, want to have instrument yeah. makers then so does each instrument maker have their own is it, is it does i mean do they have like a following of an instrument maker because it's like you know it's like yeah i mean we all know stradivarius is the is an amazing instrument maker of his day i mean are the are the modern instrument maker makers of the same ilk or the same level oh yeah sure yes they are instrument makers uh, living today and making instruments very, very comparable to the finest antique instruments, including Stradivari. And it has been all over the news. There are many double blind tests comparing wow. newly made instruments against multi-millions, Stradivari violins and professionals and, and audiences, uh, professional players and also audiences who are mistaking modern instruments for the antique instruments because there is this um, presumption that antique instrument must sound better which is not true at all anymore mm. maybe it was true once upon a time well i guess it would so have been true knowledge. it would have been true now the knowledge is easier to exactly you can take yes. a violin apart and and look at it at a degree you could never do it before yes i can see that Very i mean do, and do violins have that kind of um history and thing like like you know you think of a like a a sword that carries its 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 history with it you know a sword that was used in this battle and this battle are violins the same do they carry that mythology down with them over the years yes there is of course uh, this sort of myth uh, mythology with attached to violins certain violins so there is a lot of um yeah history attached to antique instruments and musicians uh, definitely love instruments love the idea of playing an instrument that belonged to a legendary violinist in the 17th or in, in the 19th or 20th century for example so there is a lot of that or even just a violin that belonged to an uh, uh, uncle joe or <laughs> or uh, auntie Auntie Harriet, something like that, something from the family. So yeah. there is this. However, there is much more. It's very interesting that you ask this question because the thing is, a violin as an object hasn't appeared on an empty uh, uh, space without any foundation, without any cultural background, any philosophical background. It was a it was a fruit of its own time and culture, and it has been based on actually hundreds, even thousands of tradition of thought, European thought, the, the Pythagorean traditions and all the influences of the Pythagoreans and the Renaissance and Baroque aesthetics, everything has been melted into the violins. The violins are like almost a quintessence of what we can call a European uh, culture today. Mm. By borrowing from Hermann Hesse here, because in uh, the glass bead, uh, he says that music is the quintessential gesture of European culture. So in a way, violin is also that quintessential gesture, because the truth is, violin is the core of a classical music uh, ensemble. But it's the sound, isn't it? I mean, the violin sound itself is so evocative of, of, it's almost pure emotion to me in a way that the sound of the violin is so raw and at the same time can, can have such color to it. Yeah. It, uh, it's uh, it's yeah. a voice of its own. It's like a vo the human voice. Some human voices have this, but the violin played well always has this. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
definitely a very enigmatic and the, uh, i mean you think mystery. about that it can do the classical the beauty of the class and it can do the irish jig and the fiddle and it's like and the, and the scottish music was used the same and it, and it has that uh, that color that it can cover all of those bases absolutely it's such a versatile instrument it's it's funny you mentioned scottish and irish um uh, music, I absolutely love that repertoire. <laughs> absolutely love it. So I've gone on a journey with you. I'm sorry, I, I've gone a bit geeked out on this whole idea talking about the violin. And the, so what? So I've I've come off your story. So you're now in this in this place. You're now found and you found a new instrument maker. What's? Let's get back to the story because I'm sorry I took you off on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so what you found this, did you find a new instrument maker to work with? Yes, yes. So uh, after six years of searching in St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. uh, yes, uh, late 1980s, um, I, finally I found an instrument maker who accepted me as an apprentice. And that's where I built my first violin, my wow. proper violin. I was in 1991, 92. Yeah, it was 1991 when I was making it. Imagine um, a, a room, actually it was my bedroom, uh, in a residential block, a very Soviet style, like nothing special, just many floors, essentially, <laughs> uh, on the 12th floor um, with a view of uh, Baltic Sea from the window. By the way, that view has completely gone. Now there are blocks and blocks and blocks of buildings there. <laughs> uh, but back then there was this uh, view of the of the sea from the window, and I was uh, uh, making the instrument literally on my lap because I didn't have a bench like the one you see here behind my back. No, okay, a yeah. proper bench that weighs 120 kilograms. <laughs> I didn't have a bench. All I had was my lap and a few tools that I made from f- uh, fingernail files. Oh wow. Right. Because I didn't have any tools. So I made those tools from f- fingernail files. You couldn't buy tools in the Soviet Union. It was very difficult. And uh, I was building that violin on my lap, literally. Where did you get materials from? It, I mean, is the wood yes. very unique? You, yeah, the materials, yeah. Actually, I went to the Carpathian, uh, Carpathian Mountains uh, okay. to cut the wood by myself. <gasps> I did that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have that chapter in my life as well. Um, but it, the hardest part was the tools. I didn't have the tools and you couldn't buy them anywhere. You had to make them. They were really crude and it was a really rough uh, uh, problem yeah. to have. And one day the phone rings, one of those old phones with dial ring, you know, yeah. very old fashioned. The only thing that we had back then just rings. It, it rings as I'm making the violin. I pick the phone and there was my professor, um, my teacher, violin making teacher. Yeah. yeah. And actually, would you like to buy some violin making books? Because look, I have all these books. I have have everything. I don't need anything. But you don't have any books. Do you want to buy some? Because there is a widow of a violin maker who deceased, um, who passed away uh, thirty years ago or something like that. So she's moving away to to live with her relatives or something, and she's selling books. And I was, of course, very enthusiastic about it. Yes, sure, of course, I want those books, definitely. So the next day, I take local train, 80 kilometers, and I travel to this. Uh, it was September. Beautiful. I still remember as if it was yesterday. Golden autumn, warm, dry, smell of uh, uh, pine, coniferous trees yeah. in the area, and even mushrooms from the forest because it was like an area, a whole area surrounded by f- forests and, yeah. and lakes. and Beautiful. So I arrived there. Imagine... 
uh, Russian style dacha, like a blue painted wooden house with three windows with white frames, quite dilapidated because it hasn't been maintained for uh, decades. Uh, surrounded by pine trees, all very tall pine trees. So I enter and I bump into um, into the widow, uh, elderly lady, 92 years of age she was. Wow. So as I entered to, um, the room, yeah. squ- squeaky floors, like it, it smells very old and smells wood, squeaky floors, and there she is. And she explodes like, oh, Dima, yeah, I heard about you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and she, she told me how, how she met uh, Mravinsky, Prokofiev, Rostropovich, all these celebrities as the luminaries of music culture of the 20th yeah. century, very visiting them. And she told me, well, no, I just started to feel a little bit old. Said, Jesus Christ, she's 92 <laughs> years old. And she, she's telling me she's just started Fancy to feel a little old. bit old. I said, oh my goodness, I, we, I want to be like her when I'm yeah, 92. Yeah, yeah. My God, what a brilliant uh, young girl, this 92 years uh, young girl. <laughs> like, uh, in, incredible memory, incredible wit, humor, and vivid, vivid uh, storytelling. Amazing. She's just like, you know, she painted these figures of celebrities visiting her husband and her um, um Apartment in St. Petersburg was fantastic. So anyway, I bought those books. And then she said, do you want to buy some violin making tools as well? Because look, I have a ton of tools. Oh, wow. my, my jaw just dropped like tools? Violin making? <laughs> what? <laughs> it was not only tools, not only violin making tools. Those were 19th century British uh, tools. Wow. Most of them handmade, like. Yeah. Dream coming true in the most incredible way. Unbelievable tools, chisels and planes and everything. So beautiful museum items, collector's items. So I said, yeah, of course, I want to buy them all because I didn't have any tools. And then she said, she named the price and she said, $1,000. Wow. Okay. And wow, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is. 1980, $1,000. $1,990, $1,000 is a lot of money. You know, look, so it was a collapse of Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, dollars, just, just a few months <coughs> or a year before that, if authorities found you owning some dollars, you would go to jail. It was illegal to own dollars. So dollars oh, wow. were okay. a rarity. Okay. Uh, on top of these, um, uh, real estate property was just privatized. So it was the first year or a couple of years in the history of Soviet Union someone could buy an apartment or a house. And nobody believed that the state would not come after you and take your property away again, mm. which is why these properties were on sale. For $1,000, you could have one room flat in St. Petersburg. Today, it is a fortune. Mm. Imagine. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, that was a lot of money, and I didn't have that kind of money. So I was really frustrated and like very, very sad. And I came back home and I thought, what can I do? What can I do? Where can I find this money? And um, I shared with my uh, relatives and friends and everybody said, well, if you can't afford, you can't afford, what can you do? And then just something clicked in my mind. Well, I'm going to borrow this money. And I rang like maybe <laughs> 200 friends and friends of friends. <laughs> I spent three days full time 
calling friends of friends of friends. Would you please borrow me $5, $10, $20, whatever you can borrow me. Could you please, please, please? And believe it or not, in three days, I was able to uh, collect this $1,000. Well done. And, and I, was, I was told by everyone, my relatives, friends, Dimitri, you are nuts. You are dumb. You will never, ever be able to pay back that debt. They will come after you. You will go to jail. You will take all your family with you to jail. You are irresponsible. You are selfish. You are how, 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 many loans, doing this. how many loans did you get? How many people? Did I think it was money? like 50 people, about 50 people. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Wow. Very doable. Yeah. Very, very, very doable. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it took just, you know, three days, maybe even less, two days and a half, something like this. So anyway, I got this money. I arrived in, uh, in the vehicle in that countryside house. I was so scared to carry this fortune on, on me. <laughs> it is a dangerous criminal you know, time, you know, in, in, yeah. in, in Russia and back in those years, people would kill you for hundred bucks, you know? And I was there with the pockets full of- Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness. So anyway, I arrive at that Dutchman, there she is, uh, the lady. And uh, I found the money I told her and so, I was counting out, counting those notes, trembling hands, as if it happened yesterday. I remember it so vividly. I'm cold sweating. Like, Dimitri, you are an idiot. Stop <laughs> it. Stop. Stop. <laughs> and then there was this tiny voice somewhere in the back of my mind from the clouds. somewhere like, come on, what are you waiting for? This is your dream. Just do it. Freaking do it. And I've done it. So yeah, I came back home and um, yeah, it, there were so many tools. I had to tra travel like two, three times to bring them all because I didn't have a car. Yeah. And um, so I had to travel several times to bring those tools. And um, I gave some of those tools as a present to my violin making teacher who introduced me to the lady. So it was like the birth, official birth of my violin making uh, studio. The, the violin that I was making, half of it was made on my lap. I got the prize at the violin making competition in Moscow. And uh, yeah. So what did you sell your first violin for? Um, it was not, um, it wasn't sold. Unfortunately, it was stolen. <laughs> oh, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, but the thing is, you know, um, I believe there is something in the universe that no, you know, if uh, or when an artist really truly passionate about their stuff, if they really commit, they kind of <clears throat> connect to some energies. I don't know how you can explain this, but then just like a uh, universe starts giving you the, uh, it's helping hand. You, you get noticed for that passion because you are, I don't know, I don't know probably that's how it works. And I, I really uh, feel a little bit um, uh, sad that to see today so many artists, uh, instrument makers, musicians, uh, um, not believing in what they are doing, not believing in their passion, not sharing their passion. They are doubting. And then if people doubt, well, potentially they do not commit fully, you know, and if you don't commit fully, how can you succeed? And so how many violins have you made since those days? Great question. Um, in the early days, I didn't count them. Uh, so I started counting them maybe 20, 19 years ago. Mm -hmm. Exact 19 years ago. So the counted ones are about 113, 114 instruments, something like this. I reckon it might be a little bit more than that, but something like that, 100. And when you, 100. when you, I mean, curious, I mean, obviously you took this major loan out. How long did it take you to pay it back? Oh, 
that was a paid a back in no time. I'm sure because making a yeah. violin and making a good violin with good yeah. tools, you can. You oh, can... good violins, no. <laughs> I wish, I wish, I couldn't sell those violins even for five hundred bucks. But uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, how I was able to pay back that uh, loan is because <clears throat> yes, true, I made a few instruments and I sold them still, even if they were very cheap. <laughs> but uh, there were so many. Uh, violin repairs coming in into my workshop that I, I reckon I was able to pay back all this debt in less than a year. Oh, wow. Well done. That's amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing story. And so, I mean, is, is violin making and, and maintenance still, still part of your life? Not at all. No, I stopped making, <clears throat> I stopped maintenance, stopped repairing instruments. At a certain point, I realized that my main the main idea, the main purpose why I became an instrument designer is the instrument maker is to design and make instruments rather than repair instruments. So, mm. yeah, 20 plus years ago, I just gave myself a promise never again. I just don't dedicate my time to the repair or restoration or. Unless someone brings you that unique, special, amazing violin. Even, you know? I mean, then. Some, even then, you're not going to be tempted to pick up some amazing piece of 17th century history that yes, you're holding in your I hands <laughs> great question paul actually you know so uh, i've been there and i did make a few exception uh, restoring some amazing instruments it was fun good fun well like somebody brings you a, a masterpiece from the 18th century and uh, half of it is eaten by worm or yeah something like that. i mean like you war, you, war, war damage. you you owe it to the world to bring this instrument back yes. to life don't you in a way <laughs> uh, it is it is uh, it is an incredible amount of work to restore instruments it's just such an incredible it's like you need to have a passion for this I know. and um at at certain moment I had to choose, okay, what is my main thing, restoring instruments or making instruments? And I decided, no, absolutely, it's making instruments, not restoring. This is one of those, you know, I mean, there's a synergy here in a way. And, and this is you know, like, you know, restoring a, a, a unique piece of history is worth doing. And that's really worth doing. But I mean, it's the same in in the world around us. You know, I live in a whole house. My house is 1893. And, you know, uh, to do any work in this house or any deal and any repairs in this house is a major exercise because it's such yeah. an old house. So as soon as you do anything in it, touch anything, you suddenly notice, Oh, that's got to be done. And that's got to be done. That's so I guess when you're doing working with something that's such an yeah. old piece of the kit, you, you really do have to kind of think about how you move forward with it. So yeah, it's really interesting. Absolutely. That. Whereas yeah. when you start from scratch, you start with a clean slate and you can create what you want, can't you? Yes. Very true. So there is a lot of responsibility in um, dealing with uh, valuable antique yeah. instruments. Mm. Um, a lot of knowledge, a lot of tradition has been lost because of uh, restorations and repair. Because just like if, if you get an instrument and you have to fix something, inevitably things get changed. And in this process, um, a lot of um, valuable information about how the instruments were created, what what is the with the cause of the whole thing mm. all of um, a lot of this information has been lost yeah and um uh, yeah it's it, it is it is of course um, a responsibility like you know if you go to any museum uh, uh, art museum of course they have an enorm enormous collections and 
each work of art has been restored probably countless of times. Mm. But the thing is, each work of art has a file of all of the repairs and the restorations, all of the interventions mm. um, done on a specific work of art, who were the people involved, what has been done, what materials has been used. Yeah. Everything is documented. But with instruments, it has not been done in the same way. Yeah, which is, you, don't, which is you, don't, why, you don't know. Yeah, you don't know its past. Yeah, which is, which what, is why yeah. a lot of information has been lost. And my yeah. big, big, big passion is actually my really my one of the reasons I am an instrument maker was to rediscover that uh, old masters' uh, thought process, their philosophy. What was that? The what? What were those? The ideas, the culture that fed the whole thing. Because today, if you make an instrument so like mainstream in making violins in, in today's industry, for example, is making copies. Mm. So you, you, you get a model uh, of a famous Stradivari violin or Guarneri violin or something like this. And then you make a copy using that poster photograph of a violin. But what is the reason? What are the reasons behind these gracious outlines why it's mm-hmm. shaped that way, that is not quite, it has not been quite known. And it has always been a big puzzle for me since uh, 1984 or five, something like this. And um, I, I really had that burning desire to find out the, the thought process of the ancient masters because back then they didn't have posters to copy from. They had to create instruments from scratch. Mm, so yeah, of course. Was, what was the foundation beneath? So for me, it was very important to find that basis this foundation mm. um, and have you said, discovered it have you is, yes. is that yeah yes you, you so you now produce instruments that are created to uh, your vision or, or how do you, do you copy instruments or do you create are you creating new instruments now yes i'm creating new uh instruments uh so i create instruments based on the um, thought <clears throat> process of the ancient masters that i have discovered i call it the the old masters tones technique because um, tones actually is an acronym um, it stands for five steps of the process that I'm using to design original instruments, and it is based on the um, on the uh, historical documents, the surviving documents and instruments that confirm this theory that it works. It took me actually 28 years to find out how all this thing works. Um, wow. Yeah, wow, we wow. can speak about this forever. It is something that I also teach my students, instrument makers, how to design instruments using that ancient master's thought process so that they can create unique original instruments to support unique musicians' needs. Mm. No? So have you um, continued to do tradition and taken on apprentices of train, uh, for, for instrument making and, and repair? Yes, uh, yes. I'm, uh, I'm the founder of Authentic Instrument Makers Academy, and this is where I teach instrument makers uh, how to design instruments using that ancient master's thought process and um, and other elements pertaining to our art and craft. Wonderful, wonderful. So at some point you left the Soviet Union with us, because you're not speaking from there now. You're, you're now in, um, in uh, The Hague, I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in The Hague. Was that a, a, a move, a, a move kind of to, because it was easier to work in The Hague or what, what caused you to change country? Oh, yeah, great question. So, um, yeah, actually uh, left Russia 24, six years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first I lived in Brussels and 
uh, the reason I moved to Brussels was uh, because I wanted to be in Europe. I wanted mm-hmm. to be closer to the cultural roots of the violin, of to do more research mm-hmm. around the violin, travel around the countries and, um, uh, and learn more. So that was uh, one reason. Another reason was uh, to study with celebrated, absolutely fantastic musician, violinist, conductor, uh, founder of an orchestra, you know, one of the most famous orchestras, uh, Lapitid Bands of uh, Professor Sigiswald Kirken, and he was teaching in Brussels in 1994. So this is why I moved to Brussels. So I lived in Brussels 12 years. Mm-hmm. Then Wonderful. I lived five years in Japan. And now we are in The Hague. Since mm-hmm. 10 years. Since mm-hmm. 10 years, we are in The Hague. Oh, we actually would love The Hague. We love the Netherlands. A wonderful country and a wonderful city. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, yeah. I've been there once, I seem to remember. But uh, yeah, uh, but it's amazing yeah. that you've traveled so far in Japan and all those places when, and the violin has been the story behind, behind it. Or it's, it's, a, it's a lovely, lovely story, lovely journey. Yep. So what has been your success model for you? How have you defined success in your life? Well, that's a glorious question. <laughs> Easy to ask, difficult to talk about. Yeah. And uh, this is a wonderful question. So I think success in life for, um, for a human being is to be able to create a life model, career model that would be in line with one's core values, personal values. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, definitely it is to uh, enable other instrument makers to become more successful as instrument makers, to keep that tradition of um, uh, violin making, original violin making alive, this tradition based on thousands of years of European culture mm-hmm. so that they can create uh, more incredible instruments to, to help uh, more musicians. So it's like uh, basically um, helping as many people as possible to get what they want in their lives. This is when you can have whatever you want to have in your life. And for me, definitely it has to be in line with your personal values. Hmm. Because otherwise, you can be very successful and still very unhappy. So then it's not really success. No, but if well, what are... tends to happen then is someone's following someone else's success model and then the, and the two things don't fit. That's what tends to happen. Yeah. Because you know, they, they do this because their parents said that they, they do this because their parents always wanted them to do this. And they get there and For go, example, this is not true. what I wanted. You know? True. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. So... Oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the reasons I'm dedicating now so much more time, so much more focus uh, to helping other instrument makers to build more successful instrument making businesses and uh, uh, participate in the revival of the Villanchello Dust Palace. So this is one of the things I'm perhaps the most known for. And also to keep the old master stones technique alive and create more original models. Um, it's more in line with my personal core values. So when I do this and when I see smiles of my students, it's just like, what, what can be happier than that? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> so what's been the, what's been the low points? What's held you, what's kept you going in the low points? Cause there must've been some, you know, I mean, this is a journey, obviously there must've been, there's obviously some great moments and there must've been some, now what do we do moments the easy the easy answer to this is uh, probably my um, craziness my passion for what i do 
Mm. I guess it's that. But uh, if we speak about low moments, yeah, there were several low moments. It's very important to um, to figure out what is the lesson in the low moment and mm. what can you do to turn this around and make it the best experience ever in your life. So what am I speaking about exactly? I'm speaking about one of those um, low moments in my life when on January 19, 2013, I suffered cerebral stroke and... Uh, that wasn't fun at all, you know? So it was like uh, lying in the bed, uh, half paralyzed. And I thought I can never play the violin anymore. I can never make violins ever again. Wow. Uh, I would be lucky if I, could, if I could walk and speak normally. Well, I asked the doctor, do you think I will be able to work as a luthier or be a musician? Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, you will be lucky if you will le learn to speak again. That was the situation. Not a good bedside manner, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't very fun. <laughs> what, what did, how, did, how did you turn that around? Well, the thing is, um, probably I wouldn't be able to do this uh, without my wife. But she was really the person who helped me to see things that I hadn't seen. Uh, because definitely, at, at that low moment in my life, I just wished to die. Because I thought to spend the rest of my life in bed... To yeah. be a burden. Yeah. I really love life and like, I love travel. I love do, doing things. I, I love having fun in life. Just stay in the bed, not really interesting uh, thing to do. But then my wife told me, uh, you know, Dimitri, um, don't worry about this. First thing first, you will recover. Second thing, if, even if you never play again the violin, if you never can make instruments again, no problem. Imagine how many people, how many people's lives you can inspire and can change if you simply share your knowledge around you know, how to be more successful freelance professional in music, how to be more successful as an instrument maker, how to design instruments with total certainty. Um, and that was like a, wow. Mm. I thought it completely makes sense because- So you had something to reach towards. You had something to yeah. move towards. She gave, yeah. she gave you the vision that you needed to yeah. recover. Yeah, yeah. And I realized, true, I could have <laughs> died actually on that day and I could have taken all my knowledge with myself to the mm. grave. So then what is the value in all this knowledge? Mm. What is the value in all this sacrifice and this passion and doing things? If no one knows, no one can benefit from this. And from that moment uh, onward, uh, my life started slowly changing to the point where I am today. And it's absolutely, it has been an absolutely amazing journey. This is what I mean by uh, in the low moments, a person needs to ask himself or herself a question. What does that mean? How can I turn this around and make this low moment the best moment, the best experience in my life ever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the truth of it, isn't it? We can only ever see these points and looking back. You can't see them when they're happening. You only see the benefit of them when you look back. Very true. And I, and I imagine that experience in 2013 meant when you actually did get back, you appreciated what you did all the more and gave it all the more passion and energy than you had done prior to that. Absolutely. Very true, Paul. Yes. So I, I know the answers to this. I could answer it for you, but I'm not going to. What has been your contribution to the world? I think that my main contribution, um, undeniably, I'm the most known, known for the rebirth of the violoncello da Spalla. So this is um, the predecessor of the modern day cello. There's a notion repertoire musicians can explore. It's an enormous, it's such an incredible instrument. It's actually behind my back, one of the instruments. 
uh -huh. uh, work in progress. So it is a small cello held, um, played against the shoulder, a violinist or viola player can play it. It was the instrument of choice for many important Baroque composers, uh, notably so, for your So it's an instrument that has kind of fallen out of favor and you're bringing it back? Yes, yeah, it, it has fallen out of favor for for a number of reasons, but it is still an amazing instrument. There is a lot of repertoire that can be played on this instrument, cello repertoire, violin repertoire, any kind of repertoire, because it's such a versatile instrument with incredibly warm, beautiful human voice. Mm. And uh, any open-minded violinist or violist, especially freelancer who also organize their own concerts on the side, like by, by themselves or even on the side, um, uh, could explore uh, in an instant, explore absolutely an, an, an ocean of untouched uh, repertoire and play on this instrument, which is a magical instrument. And there is virtually no competition. And when a violinist, someone who is feeling that they, they deserve to be more recognized, they deserve to be seen for their love of music, for their passion, but just because there is a hell of competition in classical mm. music, they do not get that exposure that they deserve. So then the violoncello spell is a very easy switch because it is an Can you say the name of it slowly? Because you say it so quickly, I can't hear yes. it. It is a violoncello. Violoncello. It, 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 yeah, it is Italian for cello. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Uh, that, that spalla, which means shoulder, that spalla, shoulder, cello. Uh, however, composers in the 18th century didn't call it uh, violoncello da spalla. They simply called it cello, violoncello. Yeah, so that's one thing. And another thing is my contribution to the world is keeping the tradition of violin making, original violin making as a cultural tradition alive in Europe and empower violin makers to create businesses that they absolutely love. They, they create instruments with total certainty for the musicians in their countries, in their cities, uh, using the old master stones technique, this method that I've discovered. It took me 28 years to discover. It's a beautiful method. It's so beautiful, so simple, so elegant. Mm -hmm. It's like a five years young kid can remember, memorize it in seconds, and which is why it, ancient masters in the 17th or 18th century have never left a treatise about how to design violins. It's very crazy because in those years, those centuries, they have created a treatise about almost everything. Mm -hmm. Architecture, painting, sculpture, cooking, makeup, whatever. There is a treatise about absolutely everything. But about the violin, well, there is one German belief, a German author who wrote in in a historical book, um, 1636 or something like that. We are not going to speak about violins because the violin is such a known instrument. Oh. <laughs> ha. Ha. But of course, I now wish I... he thought about the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. But then, but when I, when I discovered this method based on. Um, and historical sources which were lost even already in the 18th century Italy, the people in Italy already didn't know about this, just like everything made sense. Of course, it is so simple. Of course, you do not need 350 pages manual on how to design an instrument because it's very, very simple. And anyone, anyone, even not instrument maker, can complete a design and it will have a very solid acoustical structure built into, and it's based on thousands of years of European culture. So like speaking about instruments with a story, there we go. That's fascinating. A story much deeper than an instrument belonged to Auntie mm. and Harriet, you know, or mm. Uncle Joe. So tell me, what is the one question that I haven't asked you that I should have done? <laughs> I 
What a difficult question, Paul. What is the okay? I'll rephrase it for you. What is the one? Talk, we have talked about so many. Things. What is the one question you like people to ask you? How to be more successful as a freelance creative, perhaps. So, how do you be more successful as a freelance share creative? Your, share your passion. Speak about this. Speak about this. Yeah. People love, people, people need it. People need someone to inspire them. People don't need more artists complaining about how difficult the world is and how unfair the world is. Just, just share your freaking passion <laughs> and people will be drawn to you because they need someone to guide because this is the, this is the virus into this um, the society, a lack of passion, lack of commitment, lack of uh, faith in, them, in, in themselves. They, they are doing the right thing, being 100% sold out on the stuff that you are doing. Yes. You're getting this. And well, if you, if you commit fully, of course you get results. Of course. And if you do not commit fully, of course you don't get results. It's as simple as that, which is why Really which is why which is exactly why you borrowed your thousand dollars and you did it exactly and, yeah, and it's yeah. and we've come full circle which is lovely thank you for that that's really really it's a fascinating story <laughs> so look we're, we're coming close to the end of our time together so what is it you want who do you would like to who would you like to speak to if people want to reach out to you who who, who needs to talk to you who do you want in your life from this of course i want um I'm very passionate about creating a, a very high-end instruments of the violin family. So I would be very delighted to uh, help uh, ambitious musicians to fulfill their musical and personal and artistic aspirations with a custom-designed instrument that is made specially for them. Wow. Uh, that's one thing. And another thing is, I was thinking about this many, many, many years. Like, um, look, um, I'm now 52. If, if, if I make instruments at my current pace and I don't want to increase the production, it's completely outside of my plans. I would be may, able to make, well, what, 30 instruments more? Maybe mm. it's like a, a very, very, very limited production. So that means that I would be able to impact the lives of only 30, people. 30 musicians or something mm. like that, where I really prefer to um, help more instrument makers to create instruments the way I create them so that they can create their own style, their own language and create a legacy at bench. Mm. And, and I want to speak to artists to empower them and help them to become more recognized and more successful for who they are because they absolutely deserve this. So how would people get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? I'm all over the place. Uh, okay. They can find me on Facebook. Okay. Uh, they can find me on my website, badiaroviolins.com. It's very easy. I'm very searchable. Wonderful. So all those links will be in the show, show notes and Wonderful. they'll also be at, the, at, at our website, lifepassionandbusiness.com. So it's all available there. So do reach out to Dimitri. I am sure it will be an amazing conversation as I've had one here. So look, Dimitri, we get to the end of our conversation and we get to that final question, that really big question that we all at some stage in our life have to deal with. What is the meaning of life for you? Help as many people get what they want in their lives. That's easy enough. That's very simple and succinct. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I, I can't add anything to that. Well done. Thank you. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much for your giving me the opportunity to share my message. It was absolutely enormous pleasure talking to you. 
uh, really looking forward to potentially talking again in the future. Absolutely. So Dimitri Bagarov, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a genuine pleasure. I have really thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. All the best. Thank you. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Dimitri Badierov. Now, you may not be an inspiring Luther, but I do urge you to check out Dimitri's links and channels. In researching this program, I discovered Dimitri's YouTube channel and got lost watching him talk about instruments and playing the violoncello de Spalla, plus the duets with his wife, Tomi. All well worth watching. Now you can find Dimitri at badiarovviolins.com. You can also find him on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube and on LinkedIn, of course. All of those links will be on the show notes above, uh, but best probably find them at lifepassionandbusiness.com, but those links will be live. Okay, as I mentioned at the beginning, now is the time to discover how to find some more focus in your life and get things done. Okay, so we're all looking to move forward. We all want to find some measure of success in the world. And if you've heard the podcast, you know I have a view of success, but that's another conversation. But the point is, however you look at this, we want to get things done. You might want to get a project over the line. You might have a really big goal that you're looking to, to move, to move forward on. And the problem is, whenever we start these projects, whenever we do anything like this, there's always some resistance. There's always something that gets in the way. And that can be a multitude of things. Um, But the key to this is how do we retain focus and stay with the project and push it over the line? And that's where focus coaching can help. Now, it's a a process that I discovered some 15 years ago during my coach training. And it's something sometimes called focus coaching, turbo coaching, speed coaching. And it's a really simple process where we, we define what it is you're trying to achieve. And we look at the resistance that you're experiencing in that achievement, come up with some strategies to solve that resistance, commit to setting a date, and I hold your feet to the fire to make sure that you do that. So there's a commitment, there's an accountability process, and that's it. That's basically how it works. You get it done. And I can tell you, it is so powerful when you start working in this way, particularly when you work with someone who supports you in the process of doing it. And one thing to remember, you know, success is never guaranteed, but the struggle always is. And that's what this coaching is designed to do. It's designed to get you through the struggle towards the success you're looking for. So do check out the uh, link in on this podcast or at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. You will find a video of me again explaining this process. But if you go below the video, there's a booking link where we'll have a discussion about your project and how we could get you sorted. As always, if you have enjoyed this podcast, if you found anything here of any use, please share it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. If you can, give us a review. Give us a five-star review. I have to ask for five stars. Why not? I think I'm worth it. When you support a podcast in that way, you have no idea how effective it is, both in terms of supporting us on the platform, but it also makes us feel good. Yes, it makes me feel good, and I like to feel good. As always, thank you for your time and attention. I will catch you next time.